This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. The couple times that I've tried to put on mascara, I get it on and then I put my glasses on and it smears up my glasses. Are my eyelashes too long? I don't understand. Jenny Bovard and friends share the funny and awkward moments that come from life with vision loss. I'm simply here to tell you some real stories in a real way from my own personal experiences. Low vision moments, new episodes every month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. I haven't cooked professionally in an indoor kitchen in a very long time. My kitchen has been like in the elements. I cook in the Rocky Mountains where I'm cooking in the Beaufort Sea. That's been my kitchen lately. This is all trial and error. I, I've never done this before. Harvesting like a six foot tenderloin out of a beluga whale, it was just blew my mind. And so my kitchen style right now is very adaptable. It's forever changing. There's no consistency involved in that. You always have to be in tune to your environment where you're at. I'm learning now to rely on like that sixth sense called intuition really, really heavily now. That's Six Nations chef Rich Francis. He's a culinary activist and the first Indigenous chef to compete and become a finalist on season four of Top Chef Canada. Hey, Reg, thanks for joining us. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, I'm glad uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. How did you get started in the kitchen and cooking? Um, actually, you know, I kind of got started late in uh, in my career, so to speak. I was, uh, I was 26 years old. I was uh, an iron worker. I did carpenter work. I was not anything remotely conditioned or anything to be to become a chef. Um, it was through a series of events, uh, the summer leading up to like my 26th birthday. Uh, it was really, really hot. And, um, I ended up getting a, a few heat strokes that, uh, that were just unbearable towards the end of the season. And I ended up getting another heat stroke. I, I told my wife at the time, I, I said, you know, I don't think I, I, I can do this anymore. Like I had everything set, you know, I had a pension, I had, you know, I had all of that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then she's like, well, what are you, what are you going to do? And I, I kind of rolled around the, the thought or the idea of um, <laughs> why don't I become a chef? Not knowing anything. I never cooked professionally in my life. Have you cooked at all at that point? No, no, I had, I had <laughs> not. I, I had basically just watched Food Network. I remember watching, you know, Bobby Flay, Morimoto, all those guys. And she, <laughs> needless to say, she wasn't on board 100%. <laughs> I could only imagine. I'm with. I would be with her right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She. It was. <laughs> bless her heart, my God. But you know, still to this day, we're we're no longer together. But still to this day, she still supports me. She's the mother of my kids, and so I went to Stratford Chef School. I, I had never cooked a day in my life. Never stepped foot in a professional kitchen. So I applied to Stratford Chef School at this time. You know, it was it was a really prestigious school. Mm-hmm. and I ended up getting in and there was this production that Food Network was putting on and it was called Chef School. I think it's on Amazon Prime right now if you if you want to watch it. Okay. It kind of followed the, the lives of 12 Stratford Chef School students. 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. You know, like I was in recovery then. I was free from alcohol and drugs. I was living in London with my wife and my, my two kids at the time. And so I was basically a shoe in for the show. Like they wanted that conflict, right? And I remember stepping foot into this room where all these cooks and, you know, future chefs were, you know, Trapper Chef School. And I, I, you know, I was very blue collar. I'd never done anything like this before. And I thought, you know, I, I bit off more than I could chew. Anyways, I got... They, they cast me on the show. I got accepted in the chef school. And fast forward, you know, two years later, I ended up finishing top of my class. From the very beginning, there was something inside of me that recognized food, the cooking of food. I was able to build flavors into my head and my mental palate quite effortlessly. And um, it was, it, I had become a sponge like very, very early in my career. And I think that's one thing that kind of helped me is that I didn't have any bad habits coming into that. I guess my passion for food kind of evolved from, from chef school, but it wasn't until I started to do this indigenous bistro assignment in, um, at Stratford. I was really embarrassed and ashamed of who I was as an indigenous person before that, but it wasn't until I started to recognize these foods that I was able to kind of identify who I was and where I came from. And then 2010, I, I was in a motor vehicle accident. I was a pedestrian in Toronto. I ended up getting hit by a car and I was laid up for like six months. I couldn't bear any weight on my leg. So at this point, you know, I'm pretty deep into my cooking career. I took a look at where I'd been, what I'd done. These chefs had taken me to these amazing places with food and like I, I can do this stuff in my sleep. And, and I start to think back to, to, to Stratford, like I, I haven't done anything with indigenous food yet. And so that's when my concept of indigenous food started. Had I not got hit by that car, would I still be cooking somebody else's vision today? I don't know. So <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it going out and get hit by a car to, you know, to no, we don't want to send but, that message. <laughs> yeah. But uh had I had I not got hit by that car, I don't know where I would be today. That's when modern indigenous cuisine started for me in 2010. I always play a couple of games. Are you up for it? Okay. Let's do a game of this or that. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. Bath or shower? <laughs> shower. 100% shower. Morning or evening person? Morning, 100%. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. <sighs> we were going well up until the waffles. <laughs> Comedy or horror? Comedy. What's worse, laundry or dishes? Uh, laundry. I actually, I, I, for me, doing dishes is kind of... Uh, Isn't it soothing? It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Toothpaste. Squeeze from the middle or the bottom of the tube? Oh, geez. Um, I think I'm a middle squeezer. Yeah. Nope. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's see if you can redeem yourself here. Toilet paper. Yeah. Over or under? <laughs> Over. Yeah, see, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Popcorn or chips? Chips. Lay's regular. Burger or hot dog? Ooh, gotta go with burger. Ah, I'll go with hot dog on that one. The dog's good every now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell you about my Top Chef story. It's probably gotta go down as probably one yes, of Yes, please. It was probably one of the most heated battles on Top Chef history, is the one me and Sharina. We were having this heated debate over a, a goddamn wiener. <laughs> and it just, they actually had to cut because it got so intense. So the challenge was, 
um, ballpark classics or something like that. And we ended up getting the wiener. And for some whatever reason, because just because I grew up on the reserve, I associated wiener with being filled with chicken. And so I did something chicken on the plate. And then Shireen was like, no, beef, Rich. And I'm like, no, chicken and beef, chicken, beef. And we went back and forth. And it just turned into this crazy, nasty argument. Um, no way. Yeah. So that's exactly what she's like. No way, Rich. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... And I remember seeing McEwen's face. He was just like, are you serious? And I remember saying, you realize we're arguing over Wiener here. <laughs> and people still bother me to this day because of that one line. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Indigenous cuisine and, and the culture. Mm-hmm. How has the erasure of Indigenous culture affected all those culinary traditions? The main thing now is that people have kind of covered that up with something called Canadian cuisine. And for me, as an Indigenous chef, I, I, I'm still trying to identify what Indigenous food is for myself. So I, I'm still trying to go past the colonial genocide that happened to the Indigenous people that kind of almost wiped it out, but it didn't. That's where Bannock started. So there's that Indigenous colonial food system right there that people know. It's the Bannock, it's the Indian taco, but that came out of, out of trauma of trying to wipe us out. And that's what kind of what we came up with to ultimately survive. There's a misconception that people don't really consider. And that's like the pre-contact, the post-contact, like the pre-residential, the post-residential school. You know, at one point, Indigenous food, we didn't eat food for pleasure. You know what I mean? It was to sustain us. It was to give thanks. And then we kind of moved on. Colonialism is what kind of messed that up for us. It's so interesting that you say that because when I went to Edmonton, that's where I first tried it because there weren't that many Indigenous restaurants here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to pop up and, and I'm I'm excited about it because I get to try a lot more. But when I was in Edmonton, that's the first thing they told me I should try, which was interesting because you're saying the opposite of that. I'm saying completely opposite. There's this uh, Indigenous kind of... Um, uh tourism thing that's out there and, and they want people to taste and i'm like no like no that's not who we are because people are getting this misrepresentation that like well, that's who we are it's it the only purpose that it serves it right now is like it's the, our survival you know if you look at the history of diabetes and obesity in, in first nation people is when all that shit came into our lives you know the the five white gifts you know like it was the the, the, the sugar the salt the, the flour lactose, the sugar you know the, all all of that and so our bodies were never able to process that. The result of that is we become this epidemic called obesity and diabetes in ourselves. And so the whole philosophy behind my food is to go past that. We're in 2020, post-COVID now, and we're using Indigenous foods in, in a different way now. I think the future of Indigenous food, it's more of a verb, I think. It's more of an action that's going to tackle a lot of things that we look at, like global warming, all the issues that we face as Indigenous people, we're going to be able to tackle that through food. Modern Indigenous cuisine really isn't something tangible. It's more of like a a call to action. In Indigenous food, you do use a lot of game meats, correct? Yeah, I do. More game meats. So like bison, um, moose, Moose, seal. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the thing is, you know, like where my mom's from, my grandparents, they're Mohawk and Haudenosaunee from this area. So they were primarily 
vegetarians. I think plant-based and indigenous plants is kind of where that excitement is. How do you make that exciting? How do you make that palatable to, right. you know, the industry right now? That's that's the challenge right there. Like anybody can fry up a piece of moose and people love meat. So like anybody can do that. But like, how do you collect forage in these indigenous plants using nothing but fire? And how do you make that sexy? If we cook straight ancestral, like that food right there, mm-hmm. it sustained us. Like it wasn't there for gastronomical purposes. It wasn't there for pleasure. It was there for for feast. It was there so we could live. But now we're kind of in that era now, right now with indigenous food, like where we're making it sexy. It's in magazines, and it's it's we're into something brand new, and it's 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 really exciting. What kind of reaction do you get from people that have never tried either game or forage centered dishes? Um, the thing is, indigenous food kind of it's a double edged sword. It, it's for indigenous people, but also non indigenous. My biggest hurdle right now is the colonial palate. That's my biggest challenge is how do we get past that? And so I noticed that a lot of people that are attending my dinners that are non-Indigenous are having a bigger reaction to, say, tasting beluga for the first time or tasting moose meat for the first time. Like I said, Indigenous food is rooted in trauma. So some of the reactions that I've had from Indigenous elders, not, not even just elders, like maybe people from the 60s, is absolute just tears. Really? Like sobbing because it reminds them of going back to residential school when they were like five years old. We can't forget about that. We can't. So it's very heavy. And as an Indigenous chef, you, you, you take that on. And so how do we find the positives in that? If, you know, I'm doing an Indigenous dinner, um, people are just, they're intrigued there's a lot of silence. There's a lot of like, like what is going on? Like, do you have the mental palate for like the four medicines? Like people have a mental reference for what curry tastes like, but do you have a mental reference for like what cedar, sweetgrass, sage and tobacco tastes like on your palate? No. So, so that, that's the kind of like area that we're getting into now where we're finding new ways of doing things in an old way. I'm Mary Mamaliti and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Six Nations chef, Rich Francis. How would you describe your kitchen style? Oh, my kitchen style. Um, well, right now, like I haven't cooked professionally in, a, in an indoor kitchen in a very long time. My kitchen has been like in the elements. Like I cook in the Rocky Mountains or I'm cooking in the Beaufort Sea. Um, that's been my kitchen lately. And so my kitchen style right now, is very adaptable it's you know it's it's forever changing mm-hmm. there's no consistency involved in that and so I'm, you always have to be in tune to your environment and where you're at that's that's where my kitchen style is so i'm learning now to rely on like that uh that sixth sense called intuition like really really heavily now how do you approach a palate or ingredient that's unfamiliar to you there's this one guy named John Kabat-Zinn. He, he teaches a lot about mindfulness. And um, he does this exercises with a, a raisin and just using mindfulness to kind of guide you how to roll that, that raisin in your tongue and, and to kind of keep an open mind. That's kind of the, the approach that I kind of take to it. I may or may not like it, but you're going to get sensations or a, a, an experience that 
you know, he may or may not have had otherwise. And so I think it is important to keep an open mind. Where do you go to discover new things? So right now, uh, chefs aren't aren't inspiring me. Like there are a few a handful of chefs that are, but right now it's like the food collectors, it's the elders, uh, it's the stories mm-hmm. from the land. That's where my inspiration comes from. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what I'm writing about. You know, again, the stuff that you're not going to find in a history book or a cookbook. That that's the thing that that's really fueling my uh, my passion right now. I kind of like the hashtag cooking without borders in terms of indigenous food. So I, I kind of fuse a lot. I could Haudenosaunee or, you know, the Haida or, you know, the Navajos or, you know, I, I'll, I like to fuse different regions together, but ultimately it's very seasonal and very creator driven. And I love that because that's what we are. We're a bunch of fused cultures here in Canada. Yeah. 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 You know, and so but that's the one thing I do want to see change in Canada is like that we, we start to acknowledge more of the, what ancestral territory we're in you know like uh you hear so much about you know that fogo island or whatever in new brunswick but what territory is that really that's no that's micmac territory and you know the, the only reason why it's there is because of the history that you know kind of it's been taken over but it, ultimately the story still lies in you know the traditions and the, the terroir of the, the micmac okay i'm putting you on the spot Mm-hmm. And if you had a couple of ingredients in front of you, what would you merge together from the different regions? Right now, I I, I love working with beluga whale. Is it really fatty? Uh, yes and no. I mean, if because okay. it's a mammal, uh, like having yeah. fresh muktuk, like muktuk, and then the meat is totally different. Um, on a, my one episode of Wild Game. Um, I can't go into too many details, but I, I made nine dishes on like <laughs> So no spoiler alert here. Yeah. And, like I made beluga ribs. Get out of here. That's huge. What they did you massive. use? A big tub? Like, I, I didn't have a pot big enough, so I had to use an old oil drum. Oh. that was cleaned out and, and I filled it up with a little bit of water and I kind of steamed the ribs that way. Then I smoked them and this is all trial and error. This is all, yeah, yeah. I, I've never done this before. And like, you know, harvesting like a, a six foot tenderloin out of a, a beluga whale, like was just blew my mind. And then I used the, the heart, the flipper, the tongue, like of all like parts of the, the beluga. And we tried it and it was, it was just, it's a very strong episode. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. So we got to look out for that one. And the reason why mm-hmm. I, I ask, I mean, when I was growing up, I used to say that coming home, and walking into the kitchen was a little bit like fear factor at times because the Italians believe that nothing goes to waste. Yeah. You use every single part. So I would lift the lid on the pot thinking that it was soup and you would see, you know, maybe tongue in there. Yeah. Uh, and to mm-hmm. me, I mean, I've always had that around me. I'm going to be honest. I was a picky eater as a kid, so I didn't eat a lot of them. But I'm, I'm kind of used to that where everything is being used. Yeah, that's the one thing that I, in chef school, I I that's when nose to tail was kind of like this, this this catchphrase was starting to come along and everyone was like, oh, nose to tail. I, I really I couldn't grasp that concept because within indigenous food and culture, like it, that's just the way it is. I never heard of right. that. You know, it's like, ooh, you know, because it was like kind of this trend thing. And I was like, I just didn't get it. And I still don't because it's just the way we are. And, you know, I just, I wish people would, would really become more in tune with where their food actually comes from. You know, when you see people harvesting, you know, their, their meat or their fish and, 
some people think it's barbaric, but you know what? You know what's barbaric? I think you know when you go to go get your chicken from the uh, from Walmart or whatever. Like these chickens never see the light of day. Like that for me is barbaric. You know, like so if people really knew or understood where their food comes from, I think that they would kind of get a little bit more on board with food sovereignty and security. So. Can you give me um, a little definition of what food sovereignty means? Yeah, to me, it's like just being able to collect our things and make it our own and just to be sovereign in that way, if that makes any sense. To be food sovereign, it's, I think it means ultimately freedom. But then food security is a totally different thing as well, too. It's like, you know, you have all this infrastructure with, you know, corporate Canada that's kind of um, in the way of our food harvesters and collecting, you know, even what's happening with the oceans and the waters, like harvesting beluga whales with the, the oil and gas and even the oil and gas going through the, the traditional birthing grounds of the caribou, like that's all food security. It's, it's being taken away from the people that live up there. Then you see that all these, this food that's being shipped up there, it's not even real food at all. And so people are wondering why is there this epidemic of, heart disease and all of that stuff is because we, we we don't have access to our traditional foods but the food we do have access to is garbage is highly processed and it's so expensive and that's why i advocate so much for you know food sovereignty and, and indigenous food security you know hearing you speak and then just reading what's happening in the news i would never honestly have placed politics and food in the same category and then hearing the challenges that you face. And it appears cooking with seal, moose, and even most recently mm -hmm. lobster. It's become very did you see political. Did you see what's happening on the East Coast there? Like, I did. And it's breaking my heart. It's angering. And, you know, reaching out to some of my chef friends to like, look, this is not right. You know, like there's violence that's happening. You know, this, is, this was our inherent right as Indigenous people. And it's being taken away. I don't know. There's a handful of indigenous fishermen that are basically, you know, they just want to feed their families to sell it, you know, or whatever. But now those fishermen, they now work for the uh, the Mi'kmaq, which is which is awesome. Fantastic. But yeah, it's just honestly, I never would have put the two in the same category. No, like it's it's just kind of one thing we take for granted, you know. You know, now it's like people are starting to see just kind of the, the BS that we've kind of had to go through just to just to be here today, you know, because of the food we eat. And uh right. well see, and that brings me to there's a lot of negative press around the world on hunting and eating seals. We've heard this over and over and over. And can you explain mm -hmm. why it's important to educate and why it's not what the press has portrayed? Yeah. Um you know CBC is a good example of that. They showed brutal images of uh, the seal hunt that was happening, but that that's not us. Like for us, like it sustained us, and there's that beautiful ceremony that, that kind of is attached to it. But we don't club baby seals. That's not who we are. But right now, I noticed I noticed that the seal numbers uh, they they've become very high now. Like there, there isn't a market for it, and it's creating another problem now. Yeah, especially because they're like with, with the fisheries. But um, again, you know, the overpopulation, like what do you do with that? Like 
like I'm not a huge fan of steel. Like I'll have it here and there. I'm not a big fan of it. I'll admit that. It's an acquired taste. There's just not a market for it. Even like with the seal oil, the skin, there's only so many seal skins you can wear. And so, but now it's, it's become kind of a problem. And, you know, visually for me to see raw seal on a plate, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it, but are my guests, are my diners? I don't know. But then again, like I, I'm not going to veer too far away from the integrity of uh, indigenous food to make it palatable to the colonial standards of the industry. So, so yeah, it's, it's a very kind of fine line you got to walk. So, yeah, I mean, I, like I mentioned, first time I've ever tried seal was in Newfoundland recently and it is an acquired taste. It, it very much is. It, it's very irony, uh, very metallic. Uh, depends on, you know, I, I, I like doing seal flipper, but can I do that all the time? Probably not. Wait, how do you do your seal flipper? Because I've had it in a pie in Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah, I, I braise it. I braise it. I've done it in a whole bunch of different ways. I With the seal loins, I get coffee beans, like smoking hot red color, and I kind of bury them in the coffee embers with you know vanilla beans and espresso and and then you roast it like that and it takes on just a really amazing taste that way and so there's lots of ways. okay maybe i should have tried it that way <laughs> it's yeah. definitely an acquired yeah. taste <laughs> yeah and i don't know like it's just you know the the, the people of the eastern arctic that's how they've eaten seal for thousands of years it's it's raw mm-hmm. i want to keep that integrity of how they've eaten it but i also want to see if there's other things from other first nations that i can bring in to give it that little pat in the butt just to make it a little more sexier you know what i mean we're gonna jump into a little rapid fire ingredient you're most afraid of uh saffron name five foods you always keep in your fridge at all times uh bologna (laughs) um uh let's see pepsi what else uh, I always have fish. Uh, I always have some kind of red meat and um, plenty of fresh vegetables. What would be one of the first things you would bring into your kitchen? Cedar, sweetgrass, sage, and tobacco. Those would be kind of like my my four workhorses in, in my kitchen. Staples. Staples. Yeah, the Indigenous pantry, it's much different. And uh, I hope one day you get to see it. I hope so, too. What's your favorite curse word to use in the kitchen? Mm, I guess a, a sarcastic F-bomb. <laughs> Everyone always pauses before they answer that one. <laughs> yeah. Weirdest dish you've made? Weirdest dish I've made? Oh, probably um, beluga uh, tail and fin curry. Hmm. It just worked, though. Favorite kitchen gadget? Oh, a spoon. Culinary trend that should disappear already? Oh, probably, uh, what's that? Molecular shit. Molecular gastronomy. <laughs> <laughs> Last but not least, Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. What would you bring back? Breakfast or dinner, that's sexy. Right? We don't do it enough. I ask all my guests to share a little kitchen confession with us. Do you got one to share? I guess I, I still like ketchup on my eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I still like toasted bologna sandwiches. 
a lot of the like the res classics that i grew up on as a kid i still love to this yeah. day so you know yeah what was the other one toasted bologna toasted bologna with mustard and just onions that's like oh okay the onion i've never heard of the mustard yes yeah 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 so you added another layer now of the onion and that's just to secure that people keep their distance right <laughs> yeah so it's just you know you can take the the boy out of the res but you can't take the res out of the boy where can listeners connect with you where can they watch your new docuseries that's coming out wild game tv where can they find you share that um wild game is going to be on aptn uh i believe you can get that on most um, cable networks or satellite uh, Red Chef Revival is on YouTube. Uh, all six episodes are live right now. Um, and also, I'm very active on my uh, Instagram. That's RF Cuisine on Instagram and Rich Francis on uh, Facebook. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Be sure to visit kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. I'd like to thank producer and editor Matt Agnew. And I'm Mary Mammoliti. See you at the next episode. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.